So I'm glad to get a chance to continue this series on God in the movies, um, looking at some of the best picture nominees. I really enjoy this series because I often think we need to find ways to, how do we bring our Christian faith or our tradition into dialogue with the best of pop culture or the best of academia or the world of politics or whatever sphere in life where we bring our Christian faith to engage with it. Right? And our attitude towards pop culture is not total acceptance or total rejection, but engagement. And how, how do we bring these two things together? So when we were divvying up the movies, what movies different preachers were going to speak on, I chose Dunkirk for a couple of reasons. One, I had actually watched it already. I watched it on a plane, so that made my job a bit easier. But it was one of those 14-hour flights, so I was... Uh, probably from Canada to Australia, so I'm not sure how much I retained in there when I watched it, so I had to re-watch it again to make sure there was nothing I missed in this movie. Um, it wasn't too hard to remember things, because this movie doesn't have a lot of dialogue or a huge emphasis on certain characters. It's mainly a bunch of set pieces that gives an idea of kind of the catastrophe that's going on all around them. Um, the other reason I wanted to pick this movie was because Chris Nolan directed it. So I don't know how many of you are fans of Christopher Nolan. I hesitate to recommend movies up here because everyone, when we think about movies, it's up to your own conscience, what you, you know, your guidelines for watching movies. But I just find he's one of the most creative directors out there. So just to give a few examples of things he's uh, done in movies, he has one movie where the hero is suffering from memory loss. So the movie goes backwards every 15 minutes. Uh, he has another movie where the, it's an action movie, but the characters are fighting in dreams. And then another movie about space where they're jumping through different time dimensions. Uh, so this is a really creative thinker. And he's the best director of the Batman movies I can think of. So the Batman Begins series would be my favorite of superhero movies. So I jumped at the chance to do another. How would Chris Nolan tackle the topic of war. Now, about this Dunkirk, I'm not an expert on World War II or know a lot about the history, so I tried to look a little bit into it. I did what lecturers hate to do, and I used Wikipedia and Google <laughs> to find some sources about what happened here in Dunkirk. Uh, I'll just say a few things. So basically what this movie is about is early in the war, um, the Allied soldiers, the British and French troops, found themselves trapped on either side between France and Belgium. The Nazis had kind of circled around them, um, and they were forced to retreat to this beach or harbor at Dunkirk, where they were hoping to set sail back to England. But there could have been a huge mass of devastation. They were all pretty much stranded there and surrounded. Fortunately for them, Hitler ordered a halt of his soldiers, which gave Allied forces enough time to kind of organize retreat from this uh, beach. Now, at the time, I, I read they were only thinking maybe they could save about 45,000 of the soldiers. But because they had enough time, they were able to save over 338,000 soldiers off this beach. So although this operation was described as a huge military disaster that the, many of the British and French army could have been almost wiped out 
in this moment. You know, it became a great source of pride how many soldiers they rescued. So that's what this movie's about and how many, uh, you had things from ferries to uh, pleasure cruisers to all kinds of civilian boats bringing people from Dunkirk back to England. So that's what the movie focuses on. But there's one scene in particular that I thought about, how can I build a bridge here to our Christian faith again? And how can the Christian faith dress a movie like this? And so there's this scene where one of the civilian boats is going to Dunkirk, an older gentleman, and he has a couple sons with him, and they're going to go to Dunkirk to try to transport some of the soldiers back to England. And they managed to pick up a fallen soldier who's stranded in the ocean. Uh, And they pick up this soldier, and this soldier is not in the right state of mind. (laughs) And he is trying to tell them to turn back, that Dunkirk's a horrible place to go. You will not survive there. Don't go back there. And this soldier ends up doing something pretty terrible on this boat to try to prevent them from going. But there's one line in the movie When one of the children asks the older gentleman, uh, you know, what's wrong with this soldier? And uh, Mr. Dawson, is the name of the older person, says, he's shell-shocked, George. He's not himself. He might never be himself again. So I thought, what? This could be a way to reflect on violence and war. And what does the Christian tradition have to say about this and the huge toll not just in suffering and lives lost and physical damage and economic costs but in terms of psychological and emotional devastation that violence and war brings and in some sense I'm the wrong person to give this message because I came from a relatively privileged background right where my experience of violence is very little compared to other people who have lived this as their daily reality or have experienced it. All I can do is draw on my experience as kind of a New Testament lecturer and talk about what does the Bible have to say about this topic? And what, what's our obligations as a church when we are caring for people who have experienced violence, a war, or even violence in their day-to-day lives? Um, so one thing I'm not going to do, which seems like this would be the obvious thing to do, if we're going to talk about war and violence, is I'm not going to primarily go to Joshua or to other narratives in the Old Testament about holy war. Um, Like Pastor Aaron, you know, I struggle with how do you reconcile God is love with these stories in Joshua where Israel is called to completely exterminate their uh, enemies when they conquer the promised land right? Um, But I'll just make a couple notes here. Obviously, this is a huge topic, and there's lots of books about this topic, how theologians for the last 2,000 years have been wrestling, Jewish and Christian theologians, wrestling with these stories. I'll just say a couple notes. One, Israel's warfare was not unique in the ancient Near East. This idea of just going in and conquering and completely wiping out an enemy was the common practice of warfare. We actually have this inscription from Moab, interestingly enough, gives Moab's one of the traditional enemies of Israel, but it gives their perspective where they thought their god, Chemosh, was angry at them, and that's why Israel was the one oppressing them. 
But they managed to appease their God through sacrifice and other religious rituals, and he restored his favor. And so Moab came in and wiped out an Israelite city and slew 7,000 people. Probably the numbers are exaggerated, but this gives an idea that this is how war was conducted. It was a violent time. So what might that say is this how God was preserving his people in a particularly violent time? Or is there a case where people misunderstood the will of God and attributed to God violence that they were doing? I mean, we have to wrestle with these questions. Another thing I'll say is violence is not just in the Old Testament. Sometimes we have this idea, oh, the Old Testament's all about wrath and anger and punishment. And then when we get to the New Testament, it's all love and grace, right? Um, The problem is New Testament also has violence. The New Testament spends a lot of time talking about how the Romans were going to lay siege to Jerusalem. You know, when they surrounded the city and starved the inhabitants and tortured and killed those who tried to escape. So there's lots of suffering and violence and death in that episode. And the book of Revelation has far more violence in it than the book of Joshua does. So violence is something that goes through both Testaments, but love and grace and mercy is also something that goes through both Testaments. So if we look back in the Old Testament, how God is graceful to his people of Israel and to the ways they completely mess up. And you look at the heroes, the Abrahams, the Moses, and Davids, and they do some pretty terrible things. But God shows mercy to them. And his mercy was not just restricted to Israel. You read the book of Jonah, which is all about God's grace and mercy to the capital of a foreign empire, the nation of Assyria, that nation that completely destroyed the northern tribes of Israel, that did all kinds of cruel and barbaric things. You read their annals about what they did in warfare and about the way they tortured and intimidated by fear. But God forgives this people, so there's grace and mercy through both Testaments. But when we come back to our subject about violence, I want to look right at Jesus, right? Because we say Jesus, for us as Christians, is the fullest revelation of who God is. So he's the first one we should turn to, to see what does Jesus, as God incarnate, what does he show of this topic about violence? So we're all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' nonviolent ethic. Now, let me, re- let me read Matthew 5, 39 to 49, and then we'll continue through this topic. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, we might say, oh, this is really impractical when we're dealing with how do nations deal with each other. And what happens if a dictator rises like a Hitler and wants to conquer everyone? And what about even how we're teaching our sons and daughters, right? On the school playground, are we saying if a bully just keeps beating on you, just (laughs) keep letting the bully beat you up? Or keep taking it, be pacifistic uh, or quietistic. Uh, don't stand up for yourself. Is that the message we want to give? I mean, that's one way we could read it. But I want to suggest there might be something a bit more subversive here. Something that is nonviolent, but also it's a nonviolent act of resistance. And about standing up for your rights. 
One thing I'll note, and Luke 6.28 has the same saying, but it's not as specific. It just talks about if someone hits you on one cheek, turn the other. But Matthew very clearly specifies the right cheek. And you might go, why is that important? So just imagine if I'm going to fight someone, right, and someone's facing me. Let's assume that person's right-handed. How are they going to hit my right cheek if they're punching like this, right? They'll probably, to hit, it's probably more of a backhanded slap unless they're kind of punching like this. Uh, That's probably the sense of what they're doing. And we all know what the cultural meaning of someone who gives a backhanded slap to someone. It's it's a sign of disrespect, isn't it? Someone, you're not worth my time. It's abusive. Um, It's an insult. In our culture as well as their culture. Um... So another way of reading this is someone standing up and saying, you can hit me and I won't hit back, but you will show me the proper respect. So you will turn the other cheek. Um, If you hit me, at least show me respect as a human being in the image of God. What about some of those other lines? If someone sues you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. We might miss this because we dress differently. But oftentimes in the ancient world, people only had an outer garment and an inner garment. So the outer garment keeps you warm in the cold, let's say. And if someone wants to sue you for that outer garment, what's going to happen when you give them your inner garment as well? You will be naked before that person, which will probably be embarrassing for you to stand in the nude, but it's also embarrassing for your opponents, right? Uh, It shames the other person. It's like, if you're going to take everything I have, well, here, take it. And it maybe puts that person in their place and says, what are you doing here when you're suing for this and taking that? And what about the Roman soldier? Or if you get asked to carry a spear one mile, carry it two miles. Well, it seems like soldiers had certain permission to uh, ask the civilian population whom they've colonized, you can carry my equipment for war for one mile. But they weren't supposed to do it any further, right? Because you don't want to exasperate tensions with the civilian population that you've conquered. You want to try to keep the peace as much as you can. So maybe carrying it two miles is way you could get that person in trouble. So yes, it's nonviolence, but it's nonviolent resistance. It's standing up for your rights Demanding respect, shaming the person who would be violent and hurt and oppress. And sometimes nonviolent resistance really works. So one interesting example of this is the life of Gandhi. And there's another movie about Gandhi, uh, a much older movie. Uh, So worth watching. I remember it was all uploaded on YouTube. And Gandhi was a Hindu. But he was very influenced by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and about uh, Jesus' ethic of nonviolent resistance. And he led a nonviolent protest against the British imperialists that eventually led to the decolonization of India. So the British colonializers had to leave India. And there's an interesting scene in this movie with Gandhi where... He's walking with an Anglican clergyman in South Africa. And a group of youth, they're kind of shouting racist 
attacks at him and the Anglican clergyman as they're walking on the street towards them. And the Anglican clergyman is like, maybe we should get out of the way, go to the other side, not deal with this confrontation. And then Gandhi says, doesn't Jesus say in your New Testament, turn the other cheek? And the Anglican clergyman goes, well, I thought that was metaphorical, right? And Gandhi says, I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying, you must show courage. You must be willing to take blows and many blows and show that you will still stand and not back down. And that does something to your enemy that reminds your enemy of your true humanity. And so Gandhi keeps walking. Um, and then he utters this powerful line to the youth uh, when he walks by them and says, there's room on this street for everyone. So there is nonviolent action can work and can have great political consequences. But that's not the only thing the New Testament has to say about violence and war. Uh, even Jesus, so for instance, he's telling some parables in Luke 14, 31 to 32, about counting the costs of being a disciple. If you're willing to, if you're going to try to be my disciple, what costs are you willing to pay? And he talks about how if a king is going to war against another king with this size army, and the other king has that size of army, will he not count the cost and say, can I meet this other king in battle with a lesser army, or do I have to make terms for peace? Right? So Jesus recognizes the reality of civil government and war in his world, even as he calls his disciples to this personal standard. Uh, also in the New Testament, you have in Romans 13 or in 1 Peter 2, talk about the governments and what are Christians' obligations to governments. And on the one hand, they believe that when Jesus' kingdom comes, that will sweep away all other governments. Right? The Roman Empire will be no more when Jesus is enthroned as Lord and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But in the meantime, we are ruled by an empire, is what Romans and First Peter says. And therefore, we owe the government taxes and the government bears a sword to enforce law and order and punish wrongdoers. Now, of course, there is room for civil disobedience when governments abuse their power. And we see the apostles sometimes, they'll stand up for their Christian faith even when the government says you're not allowed to do that. And they say we must obey God first. But there is this recognition that God has instilled government for a set period of time. And that government has certain powers. Now the difficulty is this is when the government wasn't Christian. So one issue they never had to face is what happens when the government becomes Christian. So when Christianity became the legal religion in the Roman Empire, what changes things versus when Christians were still a tiny minority? And so Christians, theologians, have sort of come to two different positions on the spectrum. Some Christians, particularly before Constantine and before he became a, the Emperor Constantine in 325, before he became a Christian, they had the stance of absolute pacifism. That some of the early church fathers and mothers really struggled with Christians serving in any government position, not just in, in war, but even what happens if you're in a government position where you had to hand down a capital punishment sentence. And they struggled with that, and they weren't certain about that. 
Another Christian position has been what's called just war, where they've said, on a personal basis, I can turn the other cheek, um, but what happens if I need to defend my neighbor or someone who's innocent? Can there be just reasons? War is never an ideal. War is always something that's fallen and sinful, but can there ever be uh, means to justify protecting someone else, to defend someone else? And so just war theorists had to come up with rationales for where could war ever be acceptable for Christians to engage in. So they looked at war, it has to be only by necessity. Can't be a war of aggression, a war to gain riches or gain land for yourself, a war to just conquer, which of course throughout Christian history people didn't exactly follow those rules. Um, But that was the intent about one thing a just war is supposed to be. It has to be no crimes against humanity and wage in a way, you know, protecting civilians and treatment of captive soldiers and all these things. Um, It has to be a last resort. When other options are exhausted, when, you know, peace talks fail or sanctions fail, then it's a last resort. And the end goal has to be peace. It can't just be the cycle of violence that never ends. But that the end goal is peace between people, people made in the image of God. So this is all Christians trying to struggle with how do we understand our New Testament? How do we as disciples of Jesus live like Jesus, live out the ethic he's called us to? And how do, while we still live in a fallen and broken world, how should nations relate to one another? Um, And there's lots of areas we could talk about this, whether it be war or whether it be enforcing the law or whether it be self-defense. You know, where's the line? But I think we can have just a few things we can agree on. Is One, we live in a fallen and broken world where these things will probably continue to happen. Um, but two, our job as Christians should be to promote peace, to look for ways to peace, to look for ways to reconcile, to look for creative solutions. And our job should also be to care for the men and women who go out in defense of us, who go out in arms, that we don't enter into war lightly, but we make sure we care for our veterans and the people, uh, the physical suffering they've endured, the psychological and emotional suffering they've endured, that the church acts like a hospital that cares for them, that welcomes them, that offers a place of grace and healing for them. And that ultimately we wait for one day when Jesus' kingdom will come, when the lion will sleep with the lamb and the little child will put his hand in the cobra's nest and the little child will leave him when there's peace and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our ultimate goal. Our vision should be peace. So with that we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.